Today, I speak with Richard Atkinson, author of Mr Atkinson's Rum Contract, the story of a tangled inheritance. A detective biography uncovering new truths in his family archives on Britain's role in the slave trade, evidence which can no longer be denied. Richard speaks of his conflicted feelings in writing and exposing this story, but ultimately he felt morally obliged to publish as an act of radical honesty, only a few months before the horrific murder of George Floyd. After publication, he had one last extraordinary discovery when an unknown and most unexpected family connection takes him right back to where this story started in Jamaica, connecting the past directly to the present and affirming his belief that despite his fears, his family history has ultimately widened and deepened his world in the most unexpected and positive ways. Today he encourages others to unearth their records and bring them into the public domain, believing it is in all our interests to engage in these journeys of truth, reconciliation and repair. It's fantastic to meet the person behind the book, Mr Atkinson's Rum Contract, which I am really enjoying because it is so full of absolute detail and facts the amount of information was just bamboozling, in all honesty. And I think it was obsessional for, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, we want partly because it was kind of, you know, I was getting to know my family for the first time. I mean, for better or worse, I'm sure we'll get on to that. Um, but also, um, there was just such a lot of information to keep in my head. And being, you know, and being obsessed was, 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 my, was my way of doing that. It's almost like if, if the moment I stopped thinking about the book, everything would just... You know, everything would just be erased. This series of podcasts is looking at how Britain can look more honestly and from many different perspectives at its colonial past, mm. not, not just slavery, but its colonial yeah. past, and learn and heal through this process, um, hopefully so that we can move forward together instead of these horrible divisions that are going on in our society at the moment. And I wondered what your incentive was for actually starting this journey. It was a really personal one, I have to say. It was. It started with the loss of my dad when I was four, and he was an only child. And when I was growing up, I kind of, my, my sister and I, kind of knew no one on our dad's side of the family. I mean, quite literally, it was. It was a kind of blank, really. And all we did kind of have a sense of was that there'd been quite a bit of money in the past. I mean, not because any of it had really flowed down to us but because of various sort of bits and bobs that we kind of inherited in forms of you know, bits of china and bits of you know some chairs and you know and, and, and some old books my, my grandparents had lived in a house which had been in the family for at least 12 generations and it was sold when i was seven and i'm really pleased it was it was a it was a kind of crumbling wreck by the time they were there but basically there was a sense of a past that had sort of eluded me. I don't know, there was a yearning or an ache or something, I don't know what you'd call it. So when you set out, were you hoping that it would be a kind of healing? It would I be think healing. I was, yes, I think I was. And it came to, but it sort of came to a head in my late 30s when my wife and I, we discovered we couldn't have kids. And and so, 
you know, there was a sort of sense of being kind of marooned on, on kind of both ways, not having a dad and, and also not being able to be a dad myself. I don't know. I just think I felt a bit lost, really. So, yeah, I started to poke around, basically, in my family history. I mean, that's an incredibly moving story. And I suppose by getting, delving into the past, you, mm. maybe there was a hope for being a rootedness if you were feeling marooned. But you mentioned you were hoping for heroes, but you got a more challenging truth. I think that I was probably realistic enough to know, you know, that my, me and my family, were, they were not, you know, a heroically grand family. They were a kind of middle-class, middle-class Cumbrian family. I think what I actually expected was I expected people a bit like my dad and my grandfather because they're the only ones I'd known, um, albeit when I was very, really small. And my dad was a publisher like me and my grandfather was a rather delightful very 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 charming but quite ineffectual journalist um so you know i think i rather expected my ancestors to be a bit like them and they were um in it turned out that they were incredibly worldly go-getting amoral immoral people um who were you know who would um kind of stop at nothing to, uh, to, you know, to further, further their interests. Is that how the house came into your family? No, my, the fact that the house, I mean, the house predates slavery, um, because that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but basically the house was where all the slave-owning members of, fa- of the first generation, rather, who, who were, um, where they were born. Right, and you talk about how easy it was to love Bridget, but her five mm. sons were involved in kind of a, appalling exploitative acts. Yeah. The, the story I kind of wrote um, is three generations long, really, um, although I sort of connected up to myself kind of a few generations further down the line. But basically it's three generations. There's a first generation, which is someone who shares the same name as me. I mean, it was, that alone was pretty staggering. Um, and... So this Richard Atkinson was known as Rum Atkinson because he was he became a kind of no, he was a kind of notorious uh, West India merchant because of an incredibly sort of well you might call it dodgy you might call it self you you might call it cunning you might call it sharp you might call it just I don't know what you call it but a deal that he did to supply the British Army with rum during the American War of Independence because they travelled all over the world they left behind hundreds if not thousands of letters and I could hear their voices in, in, in these letters. I mean I probably came across the correspondence of about 50 different members of the Atkinson extended family um, and I got, to know, I got to know all their handwriting really well. You know it was a very strange um, feeling kind of. Often these letters were really really about the most confidential matters um, and you know expressing their kind of hopes and their fears. You know all the human emotions really. But I was also aware that they were, they weren't all equally sympathetic, but all of them, you know, had sympathetic traits. But I was also aware through, again, through their correspondence, but also through deep research that I did, that they were involved in just the most terrible, brutal, murderous business um and that is that is un, that is unimaginable to, to, to today's imagination that 
the business of slavery, and I mean that in, in all its broadest, in, in its broadest sense, in that obviously slavery infected a large part of the British economy. You know, it, it, it seems unthinkable to, to today to think that that was legal and was encouraged and supported and made possible by the British government and the law, the full weight of the law. And I know that you mentioned that, that some people had said you stepped back from the emotions. Well, there was a lot of facts. You know, it's almost like you have presented evidence in a case. How can Britain ever be in denial I think that's exactly right. I mean, I it was incredible. It was an incredibly emo emotional thing to do, and I do feel I feel I do feel incredibly emotional about it. I mean, I felt very conflicted about writing about my family, and I felt, but I didn't want I didn't want to sort of come over heavy handed, condemn and to condemn and to condemn and to condemn, it would be just kind of both kind of boring, but also actually the reader can make up their own minds. I suppose I felt that if you, if I presented enough of the evidence and I've literally presented every scrap of evidence that I could find that was going to be kind of enough it felt faintly transgressive to be writing about my ancestors in a way that I f hoped was balanced because I, I, I think I felt I felt it was important to show that these were ordinary people they weren't kind of outliers. They weren't doing anything that was unusual from a business point of view. They weren't particularly outliers, morally speaking. I didn't want to let them off the hook, but I also felt that if I had portrayed them as kind of monsters, I wouldn't really have been showing how ubiquitous their kind of mindset was. And in a sense, that would kind of let, if you like, us off the hook further down the line. I think that actually, as, as you know, I'm keen on trying to set up a British Truth Commission. Mm. And the difference to a, of a Truth Commission to an international court is that you do go into the nuance mm. where people aren't just monsters or saints. It's far more complex, whether it's, it's set in its historical context, that somebody can be loving to their own family at the same time as believing in a system that saw the slaves as actually animals and, yeah. and yeah. not people. And so I, I can see how you must have had that dilemma um, because you were allowed into their personal, very private, very personal letters. Absolutely. It, but also, I mean, there's so much nuance in this. And of course, a certain amount of it gets lost in translation because you can't you know, you can't help that. But, you know, the way we look at things is, 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 is so different to how they looked at things in those days. But actually, there's evidence they were doing these terrible things, but they didn't regard the enslaved people as animals. There are small signs of humanity every now and again amid, amidst the great inhumanity that implies that they kind of knew... They knew what they were doing, and in a sense, that makes it worse, doesn't it? But because actually, man's inhumanity to man is just an extraordinary thing, really. Yes, I mean, and you use a term which I think is absolutely brilliant. It's a tangled inheritance. Mm, the kind of moral tangle was just, you know, was just extraordinary. It was ten years of kind of wake of awakening for me, really. You know, in that. It did creep up on me gradually, really. I mean, I learned pretty early on that my family was involved in slavery, 
But of course, actually, what that meant, the, you know, the, the, the details of what that meant, the uh, different forms of business that um, you could be involved in and still be involved in slavery. And it turns out that my family was involved in pretty much all of them. But also the fact that what it meant for my family, I mean, you know, what it meant for, well, you know, to take it right down the line, I have cousins who are of colour. I had no idea about that before I started um, researching researching this book. And what's more, they'd never made it onto any family tree. That was a whole kind. Of, that was a whole sort of mind expanding process. But I, I, think, want, I did want you to talk about that actually. But but do you want to talk about Britain first and how it's sort of yeah. tangled inheritances? Kind. Do you look at the landscape in a different way in Britain? I, I do and I don't. I see the same things around me that I always saw, but I see them in a more interesting depth, I suppose. The knowledge that something was funded by slavery doesn't make it necessarily any less beautiful on a kind of on a sort of on a kind of purely kind of visual and aesthetic sense. But I find it fascinating and I find it obviously appalling on some levels. But I also, it doesn't detract from my experience of a place. I, 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 feel, I feel that it's possible to kind of hold the, the things that I like and the things that I don't like more or less in the same kind of, in the same place. And that's a bit of a kind, yeah, and maybe that's been a bit of a journey for me because the, the, the less one knows about this, the more one is perhaps tempted to think of it in kind of binary terms you know good bad whereas perhaps I can hold some of the kind you know I, I can I can hold those together and I definitely as a mixed race person with two histories within believe that we can hold two truths mm. at the same time I think so and I think there's I think that's the journey I suppose what I'm saying is that that is the journey that we British people have to have to have, you know that's the, that's the lesson we all have to learn if you're a member of the national trust and a house has a history that is deeply associated you know makes it deeply associated with slavery that's not doing down the house to know that a place has a certain kind of history makes it a more interesting thing so i d i don't see why being told that a certain place has a certain association even if it's a negative association doesn't destroy that place in some on some levels adds to it and it's only i, I don't mean it adds to it necessarily in a kind of positive way but it it, 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 well, it adds depth to it you were saying and adds depth to it exactly it's, it's an accumulation of knowledge completely not only does it go deeper mm. but it sounds like with you connecting with relatives it's gone wider as well. Your world has become My world is so much bigger than before it was. I mean, not just obviously because I know much more about my, my, my paternal ancestors, but, you know, it's given me such a, it's such a greater sense of my own place, this country's place in a much, much larger world. Now, I'm not saying that it hasn't been really, really tough at times, but it's been also so incredibly enriching finding out 
that the things that perhaps I thought were relatively simple aren't relatively simple. And I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't sort of, yeah. Yeah, you're, well, you're still on the journey, it sounds, it sounds like. I am, really, I am really still on the journey. And I, I, you know, and I think that I feel more comfortable with the material. You know, with, with, I feel more comfortable with this history the more I talk about it. And it's not for reasons of complacency, because I, 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 I absolutely don't feel any complacency at all about the, um, you know, the horrors behind it. And also the really, really, really deep, passionate anger that many people of colour, particularly of Caribbean backgrounds, feel about the evils that were done to their ancestors. You mentioned the anger of people in the Caribbean, and I think some people in Britain, do you think there's a fear of revenge almost, or did, have you been surprised by some of the reactions from people towards you, you and your story? from the Caribbean side? I suppose I was very... My, so my book came out uh, in, the, in, in April 2020, um, just three weeks into the first lockdown, and it came out, and it was about five weeks before George Floyd was murdered. And so it came out at a time when I felt that I was not really even in the conversation, to be honest, because there was so much anger on both sides of the, the kind of culture war divide, if you like, you know, particularly after the toppling of the Colston statue. To be honest, I felt way more um, sympathetic towards the Colston, you know, the people who pulled down Colston statue, than to those who would have kind of protected him and sort of, you know, and sort of formed a kind of, you know, human, you know, sort of barricade around him. But, you know, basically I was telling my family story you know, I, I had told my family story in a way that was, you know, fairly straight in a way, in, in the sense that I was just laying it all out there. And I, I mean, I believed, I genuinely believed, and actually I still believe that it was an act of quite radical honesty. Um, no one, no one had done anything like that up until that point. At least I didn't, I don't believe they had, you know, I, I never came across any books by people who had basically talk about their ancestors, you know, sort of slave-owning slave past. So I thought it was a kind of act of radical honesty in some ways, but actually I, I realised that there, was, there were basically reasons why people on both sides of the kind of culture war might detest me or detest, you know, or anyway, see, see fit to not like what I'd done. That's the problem with trying to explain to people a truth commission. Mm. Um, because the truth commission... It is going to be a compromise. Yeah. This is about dialogue and nuance and compromise. Yeah. You know? and, it, and you can get shot down from both sides. Yeah. Temperamentally, I'm not a kind of, you know, I'm not an activist. Um, and I'm not a sort of kind of table thumper. And I'm, some, you, know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a little bit of a kind of, I'm quite wishy-washy, to be honest. You know, I have a, a really annoying ability in my general life to be able to see both sides of an argument which actually is a pain in the ass. I'd love to be able to kind of be, I'd love to be more black and white, but I'm just not. So I, I did, you know, I felt, I, I felt bad, particularly in the sort of, um, you know, instinctively I so wanted to contribute, to feel that I contributed something to the kind of, to the furtherance of, you know, of, of, of this conversation that was very much happening, um, you know, in the summer of 2020. You know, I actually felt that I hadn't really managed to contribute to it because I basically, you know, I hadn't pinned my, 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 my colours 
firmly enough to the mast. You know, I, I can really relate to that because I think I mentioned to you I, I've been interracially adopted and mm. I have these two fathers as a result, my, my birth father, my yeah. blood father and my adopted father and it's a conflicted story of empire but they're both my fathers and I love them both. Mm. So I'm not going to, I mean as I was doing my research I did get shocked by things that came, that came out especially when I found out that my adopted father's relative was Sir Henry Lawrence that had signed away the ancestral homeland of my birth father. I mean, that was yeah, yeah, yeah. a coincidence. That's a dilemma, isn't it? That is a dilemma. And seeing his actual signature on the document, on the treaty, yeah. was extraordinary. But I knew, thank goodness, I'd witnessed the Truth Commission in South Africa, which many, it has many faults and it may not have gone far enough, but it, gave, it made me believe that it's okay to hold both in the middle, that I had to find a way through. And I think that made me go deeper into the research, more into the nuance, and as you say, widened my world and perspective. So yeah. I really do hear what you're saying. I, I kind of beat myself up for much of the summer of 2020 about not having dug deeper into my soul. But with, with hindsight, I feel kind of in some ways that actually I was lucky to have finished my my book before before that conversation took place because in a sense I could write the book that I wanted to write you know you could feel you could feel the conversation about um, Britain's imperial past kind of simmering away in the background and every now and again there'd be a you know a piece about you know about some aspect that kind of made me think kind of with increasing conviction really that I was writing a book that was being in relevance but it was never kind of loud enough to sort of send me off course or, or send me onto a different course. And, I, and I, 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 I'm grateful for that in a way. You yeah, know. I, I can see that. And also, I, I think um, if we do have truth commissions and whatever, I mean, there's personal testimony that is needed. But because it was so long ago, there's a need for facts. Mm. Um, people seem to want uh, and either from historians and when I think of your book I think it's an incredible document of both it's I think you're, it's yet to see how that will be used you know it's out there <laughs> it is out there but I mean it's, it's continuing isn't it even with your work with heirs of slavery um, yeah and could you explain a little bit about what you hope heirs of slavery might achieve or why you joined the group? I think there's a real job to be done in persuading the British public that this is that, that the idea of repair and reconciliation with the people of the Caribbean and the descendants of those who were enslaved in the Caribbean and perhaps wider you know further afield. I think there's a big job to be done in, in persuading the people of Britain. Uh, who will need to be part of the repair and reconciliation process. I mean, both emotionally, but also financially. It's a really important, it's almost like a sort of a piece of unfinished business that we all need to take part in because it involves us all to some extent. I mean, there's, you know, for better or worse, and I, and I, and I mean, there is worse, but obviously, but for better or worse, there is no one living in... Britain today, who is not in some sense the heir to slavery or an heir to slavery. Because in this country, we are 
kind of blessed with our infrastructure and our, you know, our educational system. Just so many ways, in so many ways, our national standing, if you like, even if it's just on a sort of soft kind of cultural level, is, is in part based upon the money that was made during Britain's great imperial push you know, out, out into the wide world. And it was for the 18th century, certainly during the 18th century, it was the, it was the Caribbean colonies that was kind of driving a lot of this expansion. And now, of course, you've got me and Motley saying very powerfully that they suffered twice. First, through um, being slaves building up this country, and then secondly, by suffering the effects of industrialisation by being the first affected by climate change despite having contributed anything towards it. Um, What incentive is there, though, for British people to go on this journey? I mean, you, you told me your story was discovering about your father and wanting to feel a bit more rooted. Um, but what incentive do the British people have to go there? Well, we, you know, we live in a, we live in a multiracial society um, and that is only going to increase. You know, and we are living in... We live on a small island and we live in close proximity to our neighbours. And to live well in a, in a country demands good relations between the people of that country. And it seems evident to me that if there's a problem, eventually you have to sort it out. And it seems to me that there is, you know, it seems to me that there is a, that, that there is a problem. If you talk to any person of colour, certainly with this Caribbean descent, you will find, I mean, I don't presume to know, I, I don't presume to, to understand even the beginnings of, 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 how, of how someone in that position might feel. But my experience of talking about this subject to people of colour with that, in, with that ancestry, you can sense the, the deep, deep, deep hurt. And it's partly to do with the fact that this history has been for too long unacknowledged. More recently, perhaps it's been acknowledged, but its consequences have remained unacknowledged. I feel there's just such a strong incentive for us as a nation to achieve some kind of ease with ourselves. Yes, I mean, that, that reminds me of the story of um, Mandela when he and his guard, who was with him in, at Robin Island, he said, we've both been dehumanised. Mm. And maybe it's as simple as dis-ease or disease. Yeah. That Britain... That... I think that's right. There's an enormous amount of antipathy on both sides of the racial divide. I mean, if you want to put it in those incredibly sort of, if you want to put it in that sort of binary sense. I understand why particularly young black men in London who have been stopped and searched kind of relentlessly feel that that's just a symptom of, 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 of that's just almost a continuation of this terrible history that has been not properly acknowledged. The biggest incentive is to live in a country that is more harmonious and is more at ease with itself and is not fractured. And then there's also, you know, for me, the, the, the incentive of telling the truth. And it always feels good in my view to tell the truth. Obviously, one sense of the truth is personal and subjective to some extent, but 
I think that the idea of a country in which basically you're not allowed to, or you're not, you're not encouraged to, to live a lie, as a, as a, to live a lie is just a very uncomfortable thing, in my view. But I saw in South Africa that for all the criticisms of the Truth Commission, what, one thing that I truly believe it achieved was a let, slow letting off of steam that could have avoided an explosion. And I feel it's the same here. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, my experience, I mean, talking to people of colour about what, I, what I've done is a lot, in some ways, a lot simpler than, well, a lot more straightforward than talking to kind of white people about what I've done. It feels easier because basically it's a conversation which they've had before many times. Actually, I think for white people it's very confronting because basically they perhaps on some levels feel guilt-tripped. Yes, and I don't know how we get over the guilt and mm. the shame. But I thought they'd feel a bit more angry that they'd been hoodwinked up until mm-hmm. now. But um, I'm not sure if shame leads to action. I don't think the shame leads to action. I don't think the guilt leads to action. And I, and I, I suppose, you know, this is part of the kind of ongoing work that I think has to be done to persuade the British public that actually... It's okay to talk about this stuff, and it's important to talk about it. I mean, people have asked me on a number of occasions, you know, whether I felt guilt or shame about what my ancestors did. And the answer is an unreserved no, I don't. I feel utter sadness for what they did. I feel such kind of regret. But I I just don't think that shame or, or guilt is a helpful part. You can feel shame or guilt for things that you didn't do, You've just brought up something really crucial, I think, there, because actually maybe that's why people don't want to hear the truth, is that once you know the truth, you kind of have to act, because like you said, right. you can feel bad if you don't act once you knew, but if, if you once you know, if you don't act, there's a problem. I think that's absolutely spot on. Certainly that's something that's in my... That's my experience of this whole subject because quite early on in my kind of research process I had to make on some levels it was deeply subconscious but on some levels I had to make a decision about whether I was going to kind of press on having sort of dug up some of this terrible history about my ancestors I could have decided to you know just kind of close it all up again and you know tuck it under the carpet or whatever where everyone puts terrible secrets these days um and I just felt absolutely morally obliged not to. If these stories are coming out through those that have benefited, it is real evidence <laughs> that cannot be denied. And then maybe that will lead to action of some absolutely. sort. Absolutely. I mean, actually, I think that that is something which, as as you know as inverted commas heirs of slavery as a, as a group we we should be encouraging people to do is actually making their records encouraging people to, to basically to unearth their records and, and make them public i think that is a really important and I, I i know that there are there must be hundreds of families who have kind of you know inverted commas incriminating papers in their attic i also know how very 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 i mean how very little archival material relates to the enslaved. I'm so aware of my good fortune in having so much documentary evidence of my ancestors. I had a very interesting and wonderful 
uh, friendship and um, more than friendship because it's, it's, it's a familial connection uh, since um, my book came out in hardback. Yes, can you tell us about that? It's a really lovely, positive thing to kind of conclude on, actually. It's a wonderful thing. So basically, one of the uh, side effects of uh, lockdown, as everyone will remember, is that all the kind of literary festivals and events in person were cancelled and everything went online. I did a little talk, a sort of interview on youtube um for a for a, for a literary festival um i had no sense of how many people would watch it anyway basically about six weeks after i had an email from the director of the literary festival who just saying dear richard i've just received this most extraordinary email one of the most extraordinary emails i've ever received over to you and basically it was an email from a woman of color living in Minneapolis, I mean, about 10 minutes from where George Floyd had only very recently been murdered. And she introduced herself to me as someone whose family had been enslaved by my family in Jamaica. Um, and she wrote that she was, she was a very keen genealogist, very keen on her fa- researcher into her family history. But it was also very interested in how families can be reconciled on both sides of the kind of of the sort of um, enslavement divide, if you like. You know, the family, the families of the enslaved and the families of the enslavers could be brought together and find, you know, and and and, and find kind of mutual repair um, in, in 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 making the connection. And anyway, basically, I I mean, to cut a long story short, I got straight back to her. It was a one, and she's a wonderful woman. She's called Yvette. She's about the same age as me. She's a nurse. She's a very um, accomplished genealogist um, and actually public speaker about genealogy. I didn't even see the need for my, myself to do a DNA test until relatively late on, late on in the process uh, because I was so completely over over endowed if you like with papers and um you know family bits and bobs and i felt i knew everything that was to know about my family through these kind of you know these paper records and i was of course looking at my family through a very sort of almost kind of ridiculously old-fashioned kind of patrilineal kind of point of view whereas yvette it turned out because she is the descendant of enslaved people has very, very, very little in the way of records to go on. Um, so she, her route has been to take multiple DNA tests and to work out through the people with whom she's matched by the DNA companies as DNA cousins. So basically, to kind of build almost kind of almost kind of in three dimensions almost in the abstract a family tree that way and so she's so she has reached out to many 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 people and she was reaching out to me because she knew that there is a dna connection between us wow and and basically her father who is 86 was a dna match to my second cousin who is 99 or at the time she was 99 in 
Norway. She's now 101. And our belief is that we are both descended from my certainly I don't know about I, I don't know how many generations back he is for, for Yvette but for me he's my three times great-grandfather Matt Atkinson who I know from the um, records in Jamaica was a serial rapist because uh, the names of his children come up in numerous um, baptism records and what's more Yvette's dad was born in a house that was on the site of an Atkinson estate until the 1820s. So it's very likely that our mutual ancestor, who travelled a lot around the island, kind of in the course of his kind of planter duties, would have, Yvette's ancestor would have been conceived uh, at, how do we put it, an event that took place there. This, this, this story has completely blown me away. <laughs> it's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. And Yvette, and Yvette and I really hit it off from the get-go. We, we've talked for hundreds of hours. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're so fond of each other. It's, you know, she's my fourth cousin, we think. And, um, you know, the truth is we will meet. We haven't met in, in, in real life yet because for, for various reasons. Life has gotten in the way, not least the pandemic. But um, we will we will meet, and I can't wait for that to happen. We, you know, we call each other cousin. It is easily the best thing that happened to me um, in the, in the kind of you know since my book came out. Easily, without without a shadow of a doubt, and that's why my that's why it's you know this is one way in which just one of the ways, but probably the most important way in which I found this whole process so affirming and expanding. And I suppose it's kind of puts the lie to anyone who says that we should just let sort of let sleeping dogs lie and kind of, you know, better to leave the tree, you know, better to better to leave, you know, move on and leave the past behind us. Because actually, there's so much good that can come out of, of, of exploring this, this subject. And it, I mean, it's, that sounds like a real, that relationship is the healing. That is the healing. It really is. It really is. Um... You know, and I think I think for Yvette, it's, I, 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 I don't I, I can't speak for her, obviously, but I I know from what she said to me that she finds it incredibly, you know, for her, it's been incredibly affirming as well. You know, it, it's just incredibly meaningful. It, 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 feel, it fills me with joy. And, I, you know, it really does feel me. It fills me with genuine joy. I had a really lovely chat to um, Yvette and her um, and her nephew the other day. Um, who is also who, who, who's, who was brought up in Jamaica and just the loveliest, loveliest young guy. And, you know, our, our hope and our plan is to go and, and um, hang out um, at, Yvette's un- at, at Yvette's uncle's house um, in Jamaica, you know, <laughs> within, a, within a stone's throw, pretty much, of the old sugar works that I found. This is just wonderful to hear. I mean, because what you've just said with her nephew is it's it's even going down the future generations. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a really it's a it's a really lovely lovely thing. You know, Yvette's uncle said he's 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 again quite an elderly gentleman, but he said that you know he he really looked forward to to a time when we could all sit around the table and just have a really good family reunion. And I just think what a wonderfully healing thing that would be for me anyway it would just be 
and I, I just, I, I just, I just, you know, I suppose I aspire to that, but on a bigger scale for, for this country, really. Yeah, I mean, I think you've just said, said it all through that one story, and because the willingness mm. to come back together and heal in that one story, it has everything of the potential of uncovering one story, mm. having one story heard and acknowledged, connection. Yeah, connection, 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 and and I think that's I think that's the problem. You know, it's there's there's there's, there's too much of a barricade. Well, I mean, that's the other thing, because whilst I was watching the Truth Commission in South Africa t trying to tear down sorts of borders and boundaries, and I was watching people put landmines in their back garden to prevent burglars coming in, putting more bars up on their windows, getting more weapons inside, getting snakes that they put in cars to prevent burglars. And I thought, if, if that's the alternative... Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. The, what, so sad, what are you doing here? Yeah, so as much as the Truth Commission might might not have achieved all its aims, the alternative was just too awful. Yeah, you've got to. I mean, you've you've got to do your best. Thank you to all our contributors. If you are enjoying this series, please follow and share. And importantly, if you support the call for a British Truth and Reconciliation Commission on colonialism, please sign the petition. The link is below the series intro. Thank you.